for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Good to be back in the book of Romans, chapter 2. Let me start today with a uh, story. There was a middle-aged man, and he had uh, found himself going on to heaven and standing before the pearly gates. And uh, he uh, started to walk on in, but St. Peter kind of stopped him there and, and said, it's not that easy. First, there's some criteria that you need to meet first. And uh, uh, he began to ask the man some questions. You know, he pulled out his clipboard and uh, said, uh, tell me about yourself. Were you, were you religious? And the man said, no. And, okay. Well, did you attend church? No. Uh, were you generous? No. Uh, did, did you give money to the poor? No. Hmm. Peter's frown deepened. D did you do any good deeds? Help your neighbor? Volunteer at a homeless shelter? Recycle anything? <laughs> no, no, no. Exasperated, Peter said, look, everybody does some good sometimes. Work with me here. Well, the man said, there, there was this old lady. I came out of a store. I found her surrounded by a dozen rough-looking thugs. I saw that they had stolen her purse and pushed her to the ground. They were taunting her. I got, I got so mad. I, I threw down my bags. I, I fought through the crowd. I got her purse back, and I helped her up to her feet. I, I then went up to the biggest baddest, ugliest gang member and told him what a despicable, cowardly human being I thought he was. And then I spat in his face. Peter goes, wow. When did that happen? He goes, I think it was like 10 minutes ago or so. <laughs> Every time I tell that true story, I begin to think about uh, how... Many of you can do a better job determining your charitable acts than the man in that story, but the important issue that's raised by that silly joke is, is the issue of entrance into heaven and, and the assumption that someone uh, is going to somehow hold us accountable for that, right? So not just anybody can get inside, and so I want to begin today's, question, today's message with this true or false question. I'll put it up here on the screen. Uh, entrance into heaven is based on works. True or false? Now, don't answer too quickly there. I just want you to think about that question for a moment and keep that question kind of rolling around in your mind as we look at Romans chapter 2. You can open your Bibles with me to verses 1 through 16. 2, 1 to 16. Uh, today, Paul is going to clarify for us the relationship between works and heaven. Recall with me that Paul's letter to the Romans has four major sections. There's an introduction, a section on doctrine, uh, then a section on duty, and then a conclusion. In the introduction, we've already learned about the glorious gospel. Uh, we have also learned that 
as great as the gospel is, most people don't think that they need it. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is making an argument that everybody needs the gospel, and he makes this argument with four different groups of people, uh, the rebellious, the righteous, the religious, and the rest of us. He's trying to convince each one of these groups of their need for the gospel. And so I'd like you to think about this first section of Romans a little bit like a courtroom scene. We have four different defendants. The first defendant we saw at the end of chapter 1 two weeks ago, and we'll call that person the rebellious. These were the godless and wicked who suppressed the truth in their wickedness and trade the truth about God for a lie. They trade the worship of the one true God for idolatry. And for them, of course, the verdict was guilty. But today we're going to look at the second defendant. And we're going to call this group the righteous, but the righteous is in quotes because this group isn't really righteous, which is why I've entitled the message today, The Gospel for the Morally Superior. Uh, In your bulletin that you received on your way in today, uh, you can follow along on this three-part outline. We're going to see that God's judgment is inescapable, God's judgment is impartial, and thirdly, that God's judgment is universal. First, Paul is going to make an announcement about the righteous person's false sense of superiority and how they too will not escape God's judgment. And secondly, he's going to articulate God's fair and impartial standards by which those who think they're morally superior will be judged. And then we'll see that this truth is universal. It applies to all peoples of all ages. And then at the end, we'll apply what we have learned in the text. So that's the plan. And uh, for this end, why don't we ask God for his help today? Would you pray with me? Our God, we bow our heads, we close our eyes for just a moment uh, to say thank you for preserving these words. Uh, We understand our uh, need for your help in interpreting the scriptures, and so we do ask for your assistance today and take away anything from our ears that would prevent us from hearing from you and anything from our heart that would prevent us from obeying you. And we ask that you would have your way for your beautiful name. In Jesus' name, amen. So why don't we start with verse 1. Paul begins chapter 2 like this. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Stop here for just a moment and notice that word judgment. The word literally means to size someone up and to write them off. I think we all know that uh, there's an idea here when we judge someone that we we size them up and write them off. Mm -hmm. This is what Paul is talking about, but who is he talking to? These are they who perceive themselves as being a cut above the rest of the population, and they are passing judgment on who? On the rebellious, on the wicked people. On the first group that Paul has already debated in Romans chapter 1. And as Paul laid out the vice list of sins in chapter 1, verses 29 through verse 32, and said that the wrath of God was upon them, uh, this group punctuated it with a hearty, Amen. May God severely punish those despicable, wicked people. Let me ask you a question Who will more easily see their need for the gospel? a clearly wicked sinner who has no pretense for godly things, 
or a person who feels they are morally upstanding. Paul knows that his harder job is to convince the, the righteous, or the moralist, we'll call them, of their need for the gospel. And I would guess that everyone here knows morally upstanding people who, frankly, don't see their need for this message. They lament the rest of society and how we are regressing in crime and how our culture is decaying, but yet they are completely blind to their own need of salvation. Saved from what? I'm doing pretty good. So because this is such a great challenge, Paul, who is an expert debater, is going to use grammar to set them up and get their attention. Here's how he does it. In chapter 1, when he described the wicked, he used the third-person plural. Now, if you, like me, haven't thought about grammar in a couple decades, the third-person plural is the words them and they. Paul said, they were filled with every kind of wickedness, they are full of envy, they are gossips, they exchange God's truth for a lie. And so the moralist is listening in, bobbing their head in agreement. Preach it, brother Paul, those wicked, they need to be judged. But then Paul very deliberately turns on a dime to the second person singular. Look at verse 1 again. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul brings out his apostolic finger and waves it at them. You are not morally superior. You are condemned because you commit the same sins as the wicked. He uses that same phrase here in chapter 2 that he used earlier in chapter 1, you have no excuse. Now, here's the problem, says Paul. Instead of reading Romans chapter 1 and thinking, I know some of those people. You should have been reading Romans chapter 1 and thinking, I am one of those people. But instead, many people think, I'm not a bad person. I'm not perfect, but hey, I've never killed anybody. That's pretty much the standard. As long as you're not guilty of murder, you're a good person. When we think of bad people, we think of the really bad ones, right? Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, maybe Charles Manson might make the list. But what about the rest of us who can't control our temper, who ignore our responsibilities, who neglect our families, who manipulate, or who turn a blind eye to those who are in desperate need? What makes my sin better than Hitler's? Is it the number of people I've hurt? Is it how badly they got hurt? Is it if anybody finds out? Is it, is it whether I meant to? You recall Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that you may not commit murder, but if you actually have hatred in your heart, you have the same exact sinful seeds residing in you. If you don't commit adultery, well, that's fine. But if you lust after someone, you have the same seeds of lust residing in your heart. And since I know myself better than everyone else, the first person I should be judging is myself, not others. The problem is I don't understand myself, and we don't understand ourselves, and we don't understand sin, and we definitely don't understand the God that we just sang about, the God before whom we tremble at his word. His standard, because of his holiness, is absolute perfection. He does not accept any 
sinfulness. Imagine, if you will, on this stage, on the left side of the stage over here is God in all of his absolute magnificent perfection. And then on the right side of the stage is the worst human being you can imagine. Maybe we'll just put Hitler over there. And there's this big, gigantic gap between them. Well, you may be a little bit better than Hitler, but according to the standards in the Scripture, Hitler's here, and you're, you're about like right here. Still, the gap between you and the moral perfection of God is so large and such a chasm that it doesn't even make sense to quibble over here about who's better and who's worse. Let me illustrate it this way. A couple of years ago, I was driving on Route 78, and a rock flew out of a dump truck and put a crack right in my windshield. How many of you, that's ever happened to you? Yeah, stinks, right? Well, I saw that commercial like you did, right? Safe flight repair, safe flight repair. So I call them up. <laughs> and sure enough, they come on out right here to Millington Baptist Church while I'm working, and they fixed it in the parking lot right while I was, you know, uh, on the clock here. And it wasn't a huge crack, but they told me, you know, even a small crack sometimes calls for an entire new windshield. When it comes to meeting God's standard of perfection... Our lives should be a perfect sheet of glass. If it's broken, it's broken. That's the human condition according to the book of Romans. We're broken. The problem is people don't really think like this, especially the ones who think that they're morally superior. G.K. Chesterton, the apologist back in the early 1900s, once wrote into his local newspaper. The, the paper was asking this question, what's wrong with the world today, soliciting answers from their readers? And G.K. decided to write back in, and here's what he said. What's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong. I'm the problem. Not everyone gets that. Instead, we prefer to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. These are the people in mind in Romans chapter 2. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that there's no place for pursuing holiness, and I'm not being an antinomian by saying there's no place for God's law. We ought to pursue obedience. And I'm also not saying there's not a place for loving correction and speaking the truth in love to another brother or sister in Christ, there's absolutely a place for that. That is the loving thing to do. But where we get off track is when we do so with an arrogant, self-righteous, condescending spirit, as if we're incapable of such things ourselves. You know, Jesus was described as full of grace and truth. He's so perfectly balanced, isn't he? He's the lion and the lamb. When Jesus is kind... He's not soft. When Jesus is tough, he doesn't hurt. The scriptures say things like, all authority has been given unto me. But then the scriptures also say things like, but even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You know, the Bible says he holds all things together by the word of his power. But yet the Bible also says, and a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Isn't he lovely? Our goal is to follow our Lord's example when we speak the truth in love. And if we don't, we fall into this trap of judging. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7? He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, that's a really good question, right? Why? Why why do I do that? Sometimes I do that because it just makes me feel better about myself, right? I'd much rather focus on you than have to focus on me. I'd much rather be much more fascinated with your sin than have to be focused in on my sin. And other times I don't look at the speck simply because I don't even know it's there. It's like a completely blind spot, and I have no clue that that thing is even in my eye. Well, we need help because it's not just a speck. It's, it's a plank. It's a telephone pole, but I'm unaware of that. I remember a while back I was talking with my therapist, and he asked me this really good question. That's what therapists do. They ask great questions, right? They, sometimes they sneak up on you with these questions. And before I had time to even think about my answer, I just opened my mouth, and out came evidence of my own arrogant, judgmental heart. And I will never forget it, how unbelievably self-righteous I had become. It was ugly. It was so ugly. I had just written somebody off entirely. My attitude was terrible. And though that was painful to learn, I'm grateful because then I could see clearly when he pointed it out. I learned that song. I can see clearly now. The plank is gone. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've heard that. This is what Paul is talking about with his readers. And this would have made them pretty uncomfortable, right? Verse 1 is pretty confrontational. Perhaps they were even offended and angry that he said this. But sometimes we need to be brave enough to kind of shake things up in order to get at the truth. And so to the self-righteous, Paul kind of throws a bucket of cold water on them for their own good. Because the truth is that the righteous here, the moralist, is in some deep trouble. Uh, Paul now takes the next step in his argument in verse 2. He says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So Paul is saying that if you commit the same sins, then you will face the same punishment. Do the crime, do the time. Francis Schaeffer, probably the best apologist of the last generation, used to say it's kind of like wearing around your neck a tape recorder all the time that records everything you say and everything you do. How many of us would really want to be held accountable after we turn in that tape recorder at the end of our lives? Let me put it this way. How many of you have ever accidentally made a butt dial? Yeah, I know you've never heard that word in these hallowed halls of this sanctuary before, but that is what it's called, right? You don't know it, but somehow you push a button and you call somebody. How many of you have ever received a butt dial before? Yeah. Now, how many of you are like me, and when you receive this, all of a sudden you realize they're not trying to call you, and you're like listening really carefully now. You're like, what are they saying? All of a sudden, you're like a CIA agent, listening as carefully as you possibly can for any evidence of the fact that, you know, I know you guys would never do that, never do that, I know. Here's what Paul is saying in this text. You're always on butt dial with God. It's always running. And so what will be the standard by which the morally superior will be judged? Their own words. And so one day when you're the defendant sitting on trial and they're bringing the evidence, all the judge is going to do is play the conversations that we've had when we condemn others, when we judge others, our own mouths will convict us. Paul goes on, verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. In Romans chapter 1, we learn that God's wrath against sin has already been kindled and it's already been kind of stirred up, but we also need to recognize here that there's a future day of wrath, a a full retribution that's coming in verse 5. Do you see that? And the moralist is storing up God's wrath for that time. God's wrath is presented here like a parent whose child is misbehaving in public. Some of you have been in a situation where your child is taking advantage of the fact that you're not in a position to discipline them in the restaurant or at your friend's house. But the child's foolish foolish logic is short-sighted because what they don't see is that you as a parent are storing up your wrath for when you get home. (laughs) And then the time of reckoning will occur. In the same way, the moralist has misinterpreted God's kindness and patience and relative peace and comfort in their lives, thinking that it means God is pleased with them when the reality is God has actually been very gracious and kind, giving them more space and more time to repent. So what we've seen here in verses 1 through 5 is Paul's announcement of the false superiority of the moralist. But before we move on, there's one more question that begs to be answered in this first section. Why? Why does the moralist feel superior to the wicked when they're actually performing the same sins? Uh, Let me describe the moralist to you, and it will, I believe, become clear. Uh, The moralist is a generally good citizen, a morally upstanding person. Uh, And many times they're well-educated, they're sophisticated in their language and, and, and posture, she is, is wealthy and runs in socially recognized circles. He is respectable and good-looking and wears the latest fashions. It is a fact that they are better off than most other people in society, and so they naturally give themselves credit for this success. And they also receive much praise from those around them. They are respected, educated, and powerful and prideful. But the wicked person kind of looks like a wicked person. They kind of smell like a wicked person. They have very little money. They have very little power. Sometimes they might even spend time in jail. Not always. Maybe not that extreme. But the point is, their sins are just more obvious. The moralist sees themselves as the complete opposite. Yes, they sin, but they sin in clever, crafty, and more subtle ways. You look down with me at verse 16, where Paul says there's a day coming where God judges people's secrets. The moralist is very good at hiding and justifying their sins. Their sins do not present in the same way, and so they can be overlooked. A few years ago, I came across a TV show called The Real Housewives of New Jersey. It turned out to be a show about some very wealthy, influential ladies in New Jersey who live in these beautiful homes and drive these beautiful cars and do good work in their community. But it did not take long for me to realize that behind the veneer of their sophistication were grudges, envy, slander, gossip, and immorality. It turned out to be a not-so-wholesome program. So after about five minutes, I realized this is not good for me. I quickly changed the channel to, you'll be glad to know, the safety of ESPN's Sports Center, <laughs> which is a show about wealthy, influential men who live in beautiful houses and often drive beautiful cars and 
do good work in the community, but behind the veneer of their sophistication uh, were also stories of anger, pride, envy, violence, and immorality. Friends, our world is full. Our community is full of moralists, people who think they are a cut above everyone else. But when you look more closely, what they have tried to hide becomes clear enough. When you look under the surface, the moralist, it turns out, is morally bankrupt. A few years ago, author Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. He makes the point that many Christians have become so preoccupied with the big sins of our society that we've lost sight of our need to deal with your, our own more subtle sins. And then he goes on in the book to address the what you might call more socially acceptable behaviors that we find inside the church, sins like gossip, impatience, gluttony, lack of self-control, hidden stewing, resentment, and anger. Tim Keller gives some helpful specifics of this. He says, quote, as long as you look at your workaholism as conscientiousness, as long as you look at your holding your grudge as righteous indignation, as long as you look at your materialism as good ambition, as long as you look at your arrogance as healthy self-esteem, as long as you look at your obsession with your looks as good grooming, you're in denial. And more importantly, he says, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable because you don't even see what's going on. And you're vulnerable because one day the judgment of God is coming and it is inescapable. So in movement number one, Paul has taken a fair amount of time to expose the false superiority of the righteous, saying they will not escape God's judgment. And so we move to our second point. God's judgment is not just inescapable, it, it will also be impartial. In other words, here's the question, upon what basis will their guilt be determined? Against what standard are we going to be measured and found wanting? Here, Paul's going to articulate God's fair standards in this next section, starting with verse 6. Listen carefully. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. They will all be judged on the same criteria. And what is that? Look at verse 6. Each person will be judged according to their what? Their deeds. If you persevere in your deeds in doing good, you will enjoy, verse 7, glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. And verse 10, glory, honor, and peace. Those sound pretty wonderful. If you are a person who does evil deeds, you will face, verse 8, wrath and indignation. And in verse 9, tribulation and distress. Now, for you technical people, notice in verse 11 that Paul states a truth about God that is underlying his entire argument where he says God does not show favoritism. Your Bible might say there's no partiality with God, or your Bible might say God is not a respecter of persons. The word favoritism here in the NIV is such an important word that the New Testament writers seem to invent an entire new word for it. Before the New Testament and all other Greek literature, there's no instances of this word ever used. Actually, Paul takes two words, the word to receive and the word for face, and he sticks them together and makes a new word out of those two words, to be a face receiver, to receive face. 
to be a face receiver. There is no face receiving with God, Paul says here and in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, he says the same thing. You know what I'm saying. Sometimes in the human court of law, there could be a judgment in the jury or by the judge that's based on their external, exper- uh, external uh, appearance. Paul says that's not going to be the case with God. God is not going to be a face receiver. He's not going to judge according to appearance or circumstances or cultural advantages, but according to something much more intrinsic. God sees through all of that, and he sees right into my heart. Nobody breaks the rules and gets away with it, no matter how powerful or clever or wealthy or networked we are. All are judged by the same measure. God's judgment is perfectly just. It is not capricious. It is not unfair. It is totally impartial. This is such a weighty passage. Just think about what we're talking about here. There is a day coming, one day, we don't like to talk about this in our society, right? But the text says there's a day coming where God will judge. None of us in our day really feel the full weight of the reality that's in this text, myself included. But yet, the scriptures are clear. One day, Daniel Webster, the man behind Webster's dictionary, was asked, what's the greatest thought you've ever had? And his answer was, the greatest thought I've ever had is that one day I'm accountable to God with my life. This judgment will apply equally to all without partiality. Paul continues by explaining to us God's fair standards. As we will see in our final movement, that God's judgment is not just inescapable and not just impartial, but it is also universal. Look with me at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Pause. First, notice the word all. It's the word pas. It means all without exception and all without distinction. Second, I want you to notice in verse 13, it's very important. It says, but those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Remember, to be, declared, to be declared righteous, we learned in week one, means to be justified before God, to be okay before God, to be not guilty before God. And that comes, in, according to verse 13 here, to the doers of the law. But you might say, well, what about the Gentiles who never heard about God's law? When God condemns them, does he do so without their having any understanding of God's demands upon them? How can God judge them? Well, let's see how Paul answers that objection in the next section. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. You know, if you read the founding documents of the United States of America, you'll see this phrase that shows up from time to time that talks about how we are governed by the laws of nature and nature's God. That's what's called in philosophy natural law. Our founders believed there was this embedded moral law inside the heart of every single person. What these verses are teaching us is that we will be held accountable for what we know. 
the church in Rome, of course, had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had God's law to tell them what was right and wrong. We saw that back in verse 12, they would be judged by the law. But many Gentiles did not know about the law. And so to them, Paul says, all people have a built-in sense of right and wrong, which is called in verse 14, a law for themselves, and is called in verse 15, the conscience. So Paul is articulating that God has fair standards for everyone here. If you're a Jew and you have the law of Moses, you'll be judged by the law of Moses. If you do not have the law, that's fine. God has given you an internal moral compass to guide you. But the point is we all have the book of God's law. Some of us have it in our hands. Some of us have it written on our hearts. And so the person who obeys the law gets eternal life, but to the person who doesn't, there is God's wrath. Do you remember the statement I asked you at the beginning of the message today? Is entrance into heaven determined by works? When I read this passage, it seems like the answer, according to the Apostle Paul, is yes. If you do good, you will enjoy eternal life, and if you do bad, you will face God's wrath. That's what he says. But this just doesn't seem right, does it? The good people go to heaven and the bad people don't? Is that the gospel? Is that the good news? What's going on here? Listen carefully. Just as Paul has set the moralist up in verse 1, he is setting them up again. I'm indebted to John Stott who made this observation regarding Paul's argument in this passage. He says, this is a theoretical or hypothetical statement, of course, since no human being has ever fully obeyed the law. Referring to Romans 3.20, where Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul in chapter 2 is pushing the moralist to ask themselves, how good is good enough? How many good deeds will get me glory, honor, and eternal life? How many bad deeds can I afford to, a, to, to commit before I find myself on the wrong end of God's wrath. The answer to this question, how good is good enough, is absolutely of vital importance. Let me illustrate it again. Come with me back to the pearly gates. This time, a middle-aged woman found herself standing before St. Peter. St. Peter told her, hey, you know, heaven's getting a little crowded lately. Uh, there's going to be a, a little test before you can uh, get in here. And this time, the test is going to be based on the point system. Okay? If you get 100 points, you can come in. The woman told Peter, well, I gave to the poor a lot. Uh, Peter marked her down for two points. She thought again. She said, I attended every Sunday church service since I was a little girl. One point. I have tithed on my income my entire life. Half a point. The lady began to get desperate. She searched her memory. She said, I've never even taken the name of the Lord in vain. That's worth a quarter of a point. By now, the woman was getting very frustrated. She said, at this rate, I can only get into heaven by the grace of God. Come on in said Peter. You see, Paul's entire point has been to communicate that God's standard for eternal life is perfection, and that the consequence for even one sin is to be kept out of his presence. And so the moralist, just like the wicked person back in chapter 1, finds himself in deep trouble here. 
especially when we consider the future judgment. One more verse. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. The problem with the morally superior person is their secrets. The problem is the motivation that they have behind their obedience. See, the root of sin is self-centeredness and pride. And this is going to sound really strange and counterintuitive at first, but stick with me for just a moment. Sometimes our sin can lead us into very bad behavior. But is it possible that our sin can also lead to very good behavior? Is it possible that we can behave in a morally good way, but it can still be self-serving in terms of its motivation? If you're morally good, but not so much to please God, simply because of your fear of getting caught or fear of the consequences, your moral goodness is still rooted in your desire for self-protection. In other words, if the only reason I behave myself is because I don't want the consequences of disobedience, if the only reason why I behave myself is so that I can feel morally superior and look down upon those people, because I would never do that, well then the root of my morally good behavior is rooted in self-centeredness also. And so what we see sometimes is that even our best deeds, even our most righteous acts, the book of Isaiah says, are like filthy rags before God. Good behavior can be rotten at its root. And that may be a secret to everyone else right now, but it's not a secret to God on the day that the secrets will be revealed. What we need is not a righteousness that comes from the outside. What we need is not a righteousness that's just about external appearance or looking morally good. What we need is a righteousness that works from the inside out. Look at this statement again. Entrance into heaven is based on works. If I was unclear before, let me be clear right now. This is a true statement, and we are all in deep trouble. But the good news is that there is an answer found in the gospel. A substitute has become available. Back when you guys were in school, do you remember sometimes your teachers would assign these special torturous activities called group projects and group assignments? You know what I'm talking about? These are those dreaded times where everybody gets the same grade, regardless of how much work was put in. And some of you were quite annoyed with your lesser classmates who hung on to your coattails and got an A, even though their contribution was more like a D minus. This is exactly how it is with salvation. But in this case, I am the slacker in the group with woefully insufficient good works. When I trust in Christ, though, we will find later in the book of Romans, I join his group, and he's the brains of the class. I get credit for his work on my behalf. And so teenagers, next time you're in a group project, just remember, this is a picture of the gospel right here. But you are the slacker in God's group, and it is the work of Christ that earns you an A. While your works will never be good enough to get into heaven, Christ's works substituted for you are more than sufficient. And so the real question is this, will you depend on your works or his works? If you're here today as a child or as an adult, let me give you some free advice. When you die 
and stand before God and St. Peter or whoever it is is standing there and they ask you why they should let you into heaven, do not start your sentence with these two words, I did. I did this, I did that. Instead, realize you can never meet God's moral standards. Start your sentence with these two words, Jesus did. Jesus did this for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Jesus ascended for me. Jesus intercedes for me. And Jesus has promised me that I can get in based on his works. The section of Romans 1 and 2 here reminds me a little bit of the parable of the prodigal son. If you were to take Romans 1, the rebellious, and Romans 2, the righteous, and create characters out of them, you would have the two sons in that parable. All Paul is doing is bringing both boys to court. The youngest son in Romans 1, he's the rebellious. He takes his father's inheritance and squanders it in wild living. Then he comes back home and the father welcomes him, throws him a party. Then the camera angle switches over to the older son who says, what? I've been serving and slaving for you all these years. What do I get? Nothing. I'm not going to go to that party. His own self-righteousness won't allow him to go in. You can barely see the older son's face in the top left corner of this famous painting. But if you look closely, you'll see he's scowling and disapproving. And the point of this parable is, of course, to tell us that both sons are in trouble. The problem is the older son doesn't look like he's really in trouble, even though he really is. He thinks about his younger brother and says, you're lost. And I'm kind of glad. It makes me feel better about myself. He thinks he's been so obedient. He thinks he's been so faithful. He thinks he's been just you know, standing firm all these years and he's been working and working and working. He's been so obedient and pursuing holiness. But the problem is the, the more sanctified he got, the more angry he got. And he doesn't like anybody else who hasn't worked as hard as he has to get anything good. And so he's self-righteous and he's angry and he's full of pride. And he isn't really worshiping and trusting in God. He's made an idol out of his own morality. And so, both sons are in trouble. Henry Nowen was focused on this painting one time and decided to write a book about it, considering the relationship of the painting to Rembrandt's own biography. Uh, Nowen wrote this, quote, Rembrandt is as much the elder son of the parable as he is the younger. When, during the last years of his life, he painted both sons in return of the prodigal son, he had lived a life in which neither the lostness of the younger son nor the lostness of the elder son was alien to him. Both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. But from the story itself, as well as from Rembrandt's painting, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. Tim Keller applies the parable this way. Jesus taught that we not only need to repent of our sins, but we also need to repent of the very reasons why we obey. Jesus taught that we not only need to repent of our sins, but we also need to repent of the very reasons why we obey. And so to the younger brother in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, you need to come home. And to the older brother in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, you need to come home too. And the good news is that the father in that story goes out to both sons. 
and offers both sons a seat at his table just to enjoy intimacy with him. And so we go to God not to feel superior or to even gain his favor. We go to God because we love God, because we want to be with him. It's relational. We go to God to get God. Those of you who are parents in the room, you know how sometimes when your kids are younger, they come home from the day and they they have a habit of walking in the door and the first thing out of their mouth is about how they want something from you? Hey, Dad, you know, I put this in your Amazon card. Or, hey, Dad, I need some money for this. Or, hey, did you sign me up for this? Wouldn't it be nice if one day they just came home and said, Hey, Dad, how was your day? How you doing? Great to see you, Dad. Tell me about you. This is the dynamic I need to learn to have with God. And to the degree that I understand that, it will change my entire paradigm of why I obey and how I approach God. And I won't be like either one of these two brothers. I won't openly rebel because I know where I belong and and I won't be self-righteous or obey God just to get God's stuff. I'll obey God just to be with God and then I'll be a Christian, a true child of God. And so for those of you here today who struggle like I do and who feel morally superior, can I encourage you with the words of this old hymn? Would you lay your deadly doing down? Down at Jesus' feet, stand in him alone, gloriously complete. Let me invite the worship team to come. And as we close, I want to ask you a question. Is there anywhere in your life where you've been acting like the morally superior person in this passage? Is there anywhere in your life where you've been sizing people up and writing them off? Is there any relationship in your life where you're like the older brother in that parable? We all get there from time to time. But here's what what would be a real tragedy. As a church, if we decide for like six months to go through the book of Romans and, and none of us use the word of God to drive us to our knees and show us our own need, instead we just use the word of God to condemn and judge everyone else. That would be a tragedy. That is not why Paul wrote the book of Romans. We're reading it wrong. If the sin of others doesn't break your heart, it's probably because your heart has not been broken over your sin. So if you're here today and say, Pastor Dave, I recognize this is me. I have a tendency to act morally superior. I have a tendency to size people up and write them off. I just want to invite you today to ask God to do a new fresh work inside of you. And I just want you to take one step today to ask God to help us all take the plank out of our eyes. And to that end, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we just bow our heads now and and in humility we close our eyes and we just humble ourselves before you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody looking around, but I wonder, is there anybody here today who would just be honest enough today to say, you know what, this passage is something I need to work on. I have this tendency to size people up, write them off. Would anybody here today just be honest enough to just, with every head bowed, every eye closed, just before you and God, just to, just to lift up your hand and say, hey, I struggle here. I want to learn here. I want to grow here. I'm not going to embarrass you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. 
just between you and God, just lift up your hands and say, God, you have to do a work in me here. God, we thank you that your work is, your word is so pure. Though it's hard for me to hear, I need it. And so thank you for being honest with me. It's so practical. We all realize this is what we need to do. And so I pray that today and throughout this series, you would gently and lovingly confront us where we need your loving correction, God. We repent of our self-righteousness. We know it makes you sick. And apart from your grace, we had no hope. We had no righteousness of our own. So would you cleanse us, God, now? Not from the outside in, but would you cleanse us from the inside out? And we pray that not for our own sake, but for the reputation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Can we stand and let's respond in worship of our God now?